Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. This week, a discussion between previous guests Harun Mogul and Raf Daskalou. Between the head and the heart, Rationalism and Mysticism in Judaism and Islam. Recorded with permission of Yom Limud and Shalom. All of a sudden, rabbinic Jews are reading philosophy. That's what happens. It sounds odd, that's what happens. The, the, all of a sudden, Jews participate, the religious minorities in the, in the Islamic world participated in the dominant intellectual culture, and that included reading philosophy. So this really shaped Jewish thought. And you get, so this idea of embodying divine modes of behavior or something like this starts to shift. And you get instead a philosophical idea, which is perfectionism, right? Not perfectionism like I have to rewrite this essay 500 times, but like perfectionism in the sense that I have to perfect myself. I have to cultivate myself and develop myself and discipline myself and train myself to behave in certain ways um, and have certain responses in certain situations. And I, through my entire life, I'm going to be perfecting myself and cultivating myself, right? And it's focused on, mo- on the moral aspect of life, but it includes the intellectual until you get to the Rambam. Everybody's heard of the Rambam? Rambam, he, he lived from 1138 till 1204. Um, and, he, and he's the first, he's not really the first Jewish Aristotelian, but he's the, the first big one, and he, he's like the big name. And he, and he shifted the focus from the moral to the intellectual. But the moral is part of, of the path. You can't actually, you'll never, unless you're emotionally and psychologically stable, and that means being basically sort of a good and a stable human being, a compassionate human being and all of those things, you'll never have the, you'll never get to the stage where you're really cultivating your mind, and then when your body dies, your soul will die. That's it. You, 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 you want to cultivate your mind so that you survive death. This is the secret about the Rambam that nobody will tell you. Um, according to the Rambam, because most people don't know, but, um, according to the Rambam, the soul dies, the body dies, the soul dies. Most of the philosophers disagree with that, I mean, in the Jewish tradition, but that's his position. And so, but it's still perfectionism. You still spend your life cultivating yourself and developing yourself, and that's, that's basically the philosophical tradition, perfectionism. Kabbalah. The, firstly, Kabbalah starts to emerge in very strange cryptic texts um, in the 11th and 12th century, and then in the, in the 1280s, oh no, uh, 11, maybe 12th, 13th century, in the 1280s, the first fragments of the Zohar start to circulate, okay? Now the Zohar, when the Zohar starts to circulate, uh, it's like Kabbalah just breaks free. It's like a whole new world of Kabbalah. All of a sudden you have this really rich Kabbalistic literature and they really take this classical idea of these different impulses in the divine mind. They combine it with philosophical stuff. There's a conversation between these, mostly philosophy into Kabbalah, not the other way around. Um, and, um, the, and so, but they really pick up this theme of Bring, of making divine love and compassion flow in the cosmos. And you do this it, through, through Torah and mitzvot. Oh, Torah and mitzvot are part of this. They enable this in the philosophical tradition. They enable perfectionism. They enable one to cultivate oneself and also to create a society in which individuals can be cultivating themselves. That's, that's where Torah and mitzvot fit in. In the Kabbalistic system... Torah and mitzvot help bring down the flow of divine love. They actually affect the divine world above and they help bring, they enable this flow of sustaining divine compassion that just, that sustains all beings. They help us bring this into the world. Um, and so the term for affecting the divine realm, that's theurgy, okay? That's, that's, a, that's what I want everybody to throw into conversation when you have an opportunity. Make an opportunity. What do you mean have an opportunity? Make an opportunity. Um, so, so anyway, so these are two quite different models. From quite early on, they're in some kind of conversation. So you get a lot of Kabbalists who try to synthesize the two traditions. The, the philosophers are, seem less interested in it, but then they disappear. 
You know, I mean, they sort of the Jewish philosophical tradition really um, ends probably before. I haven't looked into this, but probably before Lurianic Kabbalah, the Kabbalah of the Ari in the 16th century, started to really circulate in the world. So, um, so people tried to come up with syntheses. I'll tell you once. How much time do I have? Anyway, so the um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of a synthesis, and this is a lovely synthesis, one of my favourite syntheses, and and. Uh, and we have, to, in particular, Mandy here, who um, who had who attend, who we studied Tomer Dvorah together in a small group in Melbourne, and uh, so I'm going to mention Tomer Dvorah. Tomer Dvorah is a is a work of Kabbalistic ethics by a guy called Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, uh, known as the Ramak, um, and he lived in the 16th century and wrote this lovely book. He's made, he had other major works. This is a sort of minor work of his. And in it, he says this. Now, th this requires some concentration. All of us are made in the divine image. Okay? What, what we mean by that, this is a topic of tremendous amounts of, of, of discussion between <coughs> philosophers, Kabbalists, in rabbinic literature, all this stuff. But he'll, he'll basically take all of it and he sets up this system. He says, we're actually in the divine image. Right? All of us are a statue physically of the divine. We're a representation of the divine, externally. Now, that's external. There's an internal divine image, and it's these dispositions, these modes of behavior, and these, and these emotional dispositions. Now, if they're out of line, it turns out that the external divine image is a lie. You're walking around going, hey, I'm in the divine image, um, but you're not, because internally you're not you're, you're not actually aligned with the divine, and so uh, so it becomes the external divine image becomes a lie, and they will say who they are is unclear. But this is what he writes: they will say nice form, ugly deeds. <laughs> so that so uh, so his whole project is to bring them into alignment, and then when you bring them into alignment, you get this lovely idea that let's say I encounter, so I'm trying to cultivate these dispositions of compassion and, and patience and forgiveness and all this stuff, and I encounter frustrating situations, um, then I say, okay, this situation requires me to respond with, like, I'm, I'm frustrated, or I feel insulted, or I feel, I feel slighted or, or whatever. Uh, this situation requires me to uh, embody the divine attribute of just of whatever it might be, of uh, the, what's the word, the insulted, the humiliated king. So the divine in me is somehow um, humiliated, but it doesn't matter because the divine sustains the worms, the divine sustains, the divine's in everything. It doesn't matter. I can be humiliated. It doesn't matter. So let's say I, I identify that it requires that response and I am then, and he actually writes this, then you say, I am going to hold fast to that, to that disposition so that that divine aspect doesn't disappear from the world. You actually be that divine aspect in the world. So you're actually being... So, that's actually, so you bring it into the world by being it. And it's a very interesting... Um, so, but he's got very much the, the perfectionist tradition in the sense that you're cultivating these moral dispositions in yourself... And he's also trying to bring this flow of divine compassion into the cosmos. So that's how he, how he tries to synthesize it. I'll finish on sort of a personal note um, that I grew up in, in Sydney in a non-observant home, uh, but sort of around the observant community. And the attitude was very much that like Kabbalah is a given. Like Kabbalah is, is um, it's very, very powerful. It's, it's the, the profound truth of Judaism, but nobody actually knows really what's there. Um, and, uh, and it's very powerful. And if you look at it, you probably go mad. And it's sort of, um, that was the sort of attitude that I, that I imbibed. I know that other people had different experiences, uh, but that was sort of what, what I was around. And, um, and at some point, I got interested in it. At some point, I, I went through a Leibovitch stage, if people know what that means. Do people know what that means, a Leibovitch stage? Yishayahu Leibovitch was an Israeli, uh, an Israeli thinker who was very anti-Kabbalah and, um, 
and a lot of people go through this stage of, of like, oh, it's idolatry, and, and, and it, was, it was healthy. I needed to go through that. But then I rediscovered this through this, right? Like, I mean, when I, I went uh, to yeshiva and spent a longer time in yeshiva and really immersed myself in medieval philosophy, which I did much later for a longer period of time, um, it gave me a gateway into understanding between these classical rabbinic literature and philosophy. It gave me a way to understand the mystical tradition much more. And I think I came out with this understanding that all of these approaches, the classical rabbinic, the, the philosophical tradition, and the Kabbalistic tradition, are really ways to try to live uh, a rich spiritual practice through Torah and mitzvot and through all of our interactions in the world, interpersonal, our relationship with the environment, all of these things, that it, it, they're quite a comprehensive, each of them offer a sort of a, quite a comprehensive way of living a rich spiritual life through Torah mitzvot and beyond, you know. And um, what beyond might mean is an interesting question. I might say there is no beyond, but it doesn't yeah. matter. But, um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think just have, having in mind the map of sort of how these can interplay can help us to further, to further explore those traditions. So I'll hand over to Harun. So uh, for those of you who came uh, a little bit later, uh, again, my name is Harun. Uh, I uh, am speaking on uh, three panels or sessions today. Uh, obviously, this is the first of them. Uh, the second one, uh, for reasons not entirely clear to me, I decided to sign up for one called Ask a Muslim Anything, um, which is going to be a disaster. Um, but I will say that it's a, a wonderful way to celebrate my birthday. Um, is by, you know, exactly, right? Getting asked all sorts of, so be very nice to me, you know, ask me like nice questions, like how does it feel to know you're in the first quarter of your life? Um, so uh, things like that, it's true. Um, I also uh, wrote my uh, comments on my phone, which is a terrible idea, uh, because then you keep having to click the button and, you know, forget your passcode and things like that. Uh, so what I wanted to do, uh, you know, my third session is actually the story of how I got into the work uh, that I do, uh, which is very briefly, I, I teach uh, Islam and, and uh, to Jewish audiences, from rabbinic audiences to lay leaders, uh, and I bring Muslim leaders to Israel to study with Jewish scholars. Uh, so I do you know, very easy, non-controversial work. Um, everybody, everybody loves me. Um, I, you can tell I'm actually 18 years old. Um, this is just this is the stress of the work has taken away my hair. Um, so yeah, you know, 18 is the new 10, or I don't know what the term is. So what I wanted to do uh, today, very briefly, is I wanted to tell you a story uh, that is foundational to the Islamic tradition. Um, I won't go into the kind of detail that Raf did because. Uh, you know, I assume that the Islamic tradition probably for most of you is, is relatively unfamiliar. Uh, and so I don't want to go into something that will just kind of leave you staring at me like you are right now, um, which is what is going on, right? Um, or how do I get out of this session without looking conspicuous? Um, and it's always worse when you sit farther away from the door, so just lesson to yourself for the subsequent sessions. You know, if you're the kind of person who gets antsy really easily, you want to be close to the exit. Um, also, because there's a Muslim in the room and you don't know what I'm going to do. So just to be entirely, it's okay, you can laugh. Um, so we laugh all the time. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a foundational story um, which has elements on it of, of what we would call the more rational or, or ritualistic or, or orthopractic, as in the formal observant part of the religious tradition, and then elements that have the more spiritual or mystical, and show you how this foundational story uh, actually, like any story in any tradition, like any myth, um, exactly as Ralph used the term, uh, is something that we draw from and we find meaning from. And so if you understand this very basic story in the Islamic tradition, you understand um, the most fundamental component uh, of the Muslim worldview. Like, what does it mean to be a Muslim? How do Muslims look at the world? What do we have in common with the Jewish tradition? What do we have different? Um, to understand the story which takes place, you know, at sort of the beginning of humankind, uh, you need to understand that in the Muslim tradition, Everything that exists is aware at some level of the divine. Uh, and that doesn't just mean animate things, right? Even inanimate matter is aware of the divine, right? Everything has been created um, to resonate with or vibrate with uh, or to be in harmony with the divine. Uh, but there are certain categories of beings uh, which have a higher order of awareness. And there are three species or three categories of being. Uh, that in the Arabic are called aqil, or have, possess reason. 
Um, and these are humans, angels, and jinn, J-I-N-N, uh, which has been corrupted in modern Western culture as genies. So if you've seen Aladdin, um, I have nothing to add to that movie. You've just mastered uh, Islamic civilization. Um, <laughs> genies are blue, and all of them are voiced by Robin Williams. Um, so he's this sort of theurgical force, for lack of a better term. Um, so um, angels are rational, as in they are sentient, they are self-aware, they are conscious. Uh, they are capable of questioning the divine, but they don't have free will. So in the Islamic tradition, angels cannot disobey God. Right? They can question God and say, why am I supposed to do this? But they can't not do this. Uh, jinn, on the other hand, are rational and conscious and have moral agency. As in they can choose to be good, to cultivate their internal state, uh, or they can choose to ignore the divine, uh, or even act in ways that are evil, irresponsible. And so in the Muslim tradition, there was one jinn uh, whose name was Iblis, I-B-L-I-S, um, uh, who was known for being so pious, so worshipful, um, that God granted him permission to worship in the company of angels before the throne of the divine, right? So in the highest and closest presence of God. And Iblis would basically spend his entire life in prayer, uh, glorifying the divine, just like all the angels around. And one day, God says to the angels, and this is the kind of key story in the Islamic tradition, um, I am creating a caliph on earth. And the word caliph is not, it's the same word that you associate with groups like ISIS or you know, the Islamic Caliphate, but in this context, it's used very differently. Uh, a caliph just means a representative, someone to whom you delegate authority. So God is saying, I am creating someone who I will delegate authority to on earth. And the angels ask something very interesting. Their first response is, will you create someone who sheds blood and causes corruption, uh, which is a rather interesting response to you know, the announcement, as if someone, if Raph were to say, I'm buying a house, and I were to say, you know, is it going to be in very poor condition uh, and really ultimately a bad investment? Um, and so you would assume from that that previously perhaps Raph made a bad investment, um, or I am not the kind of person who knows how to judge houses. Uh, in the Islamic tradition, this is usually taken to mean that God attempted this before, that were, there were caliphs whatever that means, that were created before, uh, and they didn't live up to their promise, and so something happened to them, whether they were demoted or destroyed, or we, we don't know what, right? This could mean, you know, on earth, it could mean in some other context, we don't know, and God answers in the way that God loves to answer in our tradition, I know what you don't know, which is not actually an answer, um, but that's one of the advantages of being God, you can just say whatever you want, right? So it's just kind of fun, right? Like, I know what you don't know. I'm going to answer all my questions, by the way, in the next session, just like that. I'm going to, like, do a voice of divine. They're like, what about you? And then, um, so no one will understand. So, uh, and then in the Muslim tradition, God creates Adam. And he teaches, and again, the story is very ambiguous, right? And you can see why it's so rich in meaning. He, he teaches Adam the names of all things. Again, what that means, you can have centuries of debate over. And then God takes these things, whatever they are, and places them before the angels and says, tell me the names of these things if you know them. And the angels say, we only have whatever knowledge you have given us. And then Adam shows up, right, and produces the names of all these things, right? So clearly... The ability to name or categorize or speak is somehow deeply representative of what makes the human being unique. And the angels say, glory be to you, to God, as in they, did not, they were not capable of producing the kind of knowledge that Adam was. Now, as you can tell, this is not actually a response to whether Adam or his progeny will shed blood or cause corruption in the land. Uh, it just means that Adam has a certain cognitive ability that the angels lack. And God says to the angels, bow all of you to Adam. And they prostrate themselves, except Iblis. Right? Iblis, as you can imagine, is the person who becomes the devil and refuses. Why? Because in the Muslim tradition, there's two interpretations. One is, the more rationalist or, or literalist interpretation is, Iblis believed that he was going to be the caliph. Why have I spent all my life worshiping you when you finally announced this like new coveted position and I am the first and lead applicant for the position and I don't get it? 
And not only do I not get it, but this thing that no one's ever heard of before, and this brand new being is going to get this position, like, y'all can go to hell, right? Like, Iblis is not happy. In the Sufi tradition, fascinating, Iblis doesn't bow to Adam because he is so purely monotheistic that he is even willing to disobey God in order to honor God. <laughs> that he's not allowed to prostrate to anything but God, so even if God himself says prostrate to Adam, Iblis refuses, and out of a sort of strange kind of love for the divine, uh, he, he accepts being spurned by the divine. And God says to Iblis, you are, you are out of the company of angels, and Iblis says to God, I will show you that your caliph is not who you think he is. And then all of a sudden Eve shows up in the story. The Quran jumps around a lot. It's a little bit ADD. Um, and so it just things are just happening very rapidly. And God says to them, hey, there's this really nice garden. You can do whatever you want. I'm sure you all know the story basically, right? <laughs> just don't go to this tree. Like do whatever you want. Just don't go there. So naturally, what do they do? They go there, right? Because maybe it's a really cool tree. I don't know. It's something that's different, right? It's very exciting. Um, and Satan basically whispers, in the Muslim tradition, Satan whispers to Adam and tells Adam, you should eat from the tree. And Adam eats from the tree. And he gives some of the fruit from the tree to Eve. And then they have transgressed. They are made aware of their nakedness. And God says to them, what have you done? And Iblis says, I showed you that Adam was not who you thought he was. That at the first chance to disobey you, he disobeyed you. So congratulations on a rather defective caliph. <laughs> and God says to Adam and Eve, you are exiled from here. Go down to earth and live there for a time. But as Adam and Eve are leaving, he teaches them words of repentance, toba, which in Hebrew is teshuva. It's the, same, it's the same word. It means to turn back or to come back. He teaches them words of repentance. And, and when Adam and Eve repeat them, God says, your sin is forgiven. You inherit the consequences of the sin, right? You're still being exiled to earth, right? But you're not going to bear. So Islam, you know, unlike Christianity, as we know, there's no concept of original sin, right? Nobody inherits, as the same in the Jewish tradition, nobody inherits this sort of sin. So um, basically, the interesting thing is, and, and this is where I'll kind of bring the story to a close, how many people here have seen Star Wars? That's a terrible showing. Um, you're the worst Americans ever, and you're not even American. Um, so uh, it's okay. I just, sometimes now I listen to the news, and I wish I wasn't American. Um, so, you know, we just, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I like it. It's fun, you know? Um, but sometimes it's like, yeah, I apologize. Um, now it's just hard to show your passport. You just kind of cringe. You're like, I didn't, you know, I voted for Hillary. Um, so anyway, um, Caliph has multiple meanings, like president has multiple meanings, right? Like president ordinarily means a rational human being who's capable <laughs> of managing more than one thing at a time and does not act impulsively. Um, so anyway, um, if you've seen Star Wars, Anakin Skywalker is Darth Vader, right? And basically what's interesting about the story of, of evil and the, the most sort of gripping stories of evil is that in this story... God says, I am creating a caliph on earth. And yet he creates Adam and Eve in paradise. Adam and Eve only become caliphs after they sin. So in the Muslim tradition, what makes you a human being is your rationality, your cognition. What makes you a caliph, what makes you deserving of being the image of the divine in the world, is that you will make mistakes, but that you will repent for them. Not that you won't make mistakes, because Satan, the difference between Satan and Adam is that both of them disobey God. But when they are made aware of their disobedience, Satan becomes arrogant and doubles down on his sin, and Adam softens and recognizes the fault in what he's done. And it is that descent that is paradoxically his elevation. And so in the Muslim tradition, there are basically two streams, right? And Raf and I were talking about this in Melbourne as well, uh, that it's a very modern kind of concept to believe that rationalism and mysticism are just these distinct categories. But there are tendencies. And there are some Muslims who focus on this idea that when you are in the world, 
Your, your job is to embody the law, right? To live out the commandments of God in order to honor the divine and to make oneself worthy of the caliphate. And a more spiritual or mystical interpretation of the tradition is that um, you are an exile. And so your purpose here is to basically find your way back home. And the purpose of the commandment is simply to basically climb your way or claw your way back to paradise. And so in the Islamic tradition, the consciousness is that this life is a very temporary thing. It's not really real. And, and kind of foundational to Islamic mysticism, and I'll, start, and I'll stop here, is that inside everyone there is an anxiety or an unsettledness or a dissatisfaction or a fear that is inescapable because we are in exile. And until you go home, you will never be whole. And the only thing that can really fill that or hold that at bay is to be in communion with the divine. And anything else you find in your life ultimately will fall short because it doesn't speak to your true nature. And your true nature is that you were created in order to represent the divine. Thank you. Do we take, yeah, let's, let's do, your hand went up very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the the, the, the follow-up question to that last statement was, uh, what are the paths home? What are the paths to going home? So this is one of the richest debates in the Islamic tradition. As you can imagine, um, there are very different perspectives. Um, one, one perspective, because Islam is a missionary religion, um, and one thing I'll say by way of preface to the question, the question is, what are the paths to going home? Uh, is that you know, every tradition has certain strengths that can become weaknesses. Um, and so one of the, the strengths of Islam, in my opinion, is a very ecumenical spirit, right? In the sense that as a universalist faith, you want to bring everyone in. Um, that can very quickly be perverted into supremacism, right? It goes from, you know, hey, this is for everybody, can very quickly turn into, why isn't everybody doing this? There's something wrong with them, right? And so there's a bit of a, you know, a give and take, and at certain time periods, <clears throat> Um, you know, certain tendencies tend to be more dominant than others, shall we say, um, and even to the point of using force and, and even, you know, um, violence, you know, in, in a very severe sense, to impose one's will or interpretation of the road home onto others. Um, in the Muslim tradition, I think there's basically two opinions. There's three opinions. One is, and I think this gets to the philosophical tradition, that because we are all caliphs, we don't need religion to know right and wrong, right? That this is inherent in you as a human being because you're a human being. Um, the second position is that you don't need religion to tell you right and wrong in the broad outlines. Everybody knows that murder is wrong, that theft is wrong, that oppression is wrong. But the specifics of the road home, as in prayer or fasting or charity, the forms it should take, can only be known through revelation. And the third and final position is that right and wrong can only be known through revelation, and that independent of revelation, um, there is no deeper human awareness of right and wrong. Now, interestingly enough, the dominant position in the Muslim world right now um, is, is the, the, the last of these that right and wrong are only known through revelation, which paradoxically means in the classical Islamic formulation, the more likely, the more Muslim you are, the more likely you are to go to hell. Because if you don't have awareness of revelation, you are not answerable to God for what you don't know. Right? And this is what I mean by strength and weakness, right? Now, on the surface of it, this idea that everybody knows right and wrong intrinsically is very appealing, and I can see why, right? Because we're all, you know, sort of moral beings. But the, the, the sort of corollary of this in the philosophical tradition is, well, then, when you die and you go before God, um, you are answerable for your deeds. And the, the position that was classically dominant um, is that, no, you don't know. And you only know through revelation from God speaking to humanity. Um, and then finally, in that last camp, there are two positions. One is that, um, you know, we believe in the Muslim tradition that prophets were chosen among every people, um, and that any of those following any of those prophets is a valid path home. 
And the second position is that all prophets were chosen to speak to every people, but Muhammad and the Quran are the final revelation and they supersede all revelation. So once Muhammad shows up, it is no longer acceptable to follow a prophet other than Muhammad. And those two positions are in tension. Yeah. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. I read a few being very nuanced in your, in your depiction. I'm interested in strict observance, the rule-based sort of traditions, because that's where we see fundamentalism in, in both, on both sides. Can you talk about the, the place that strict observance of codes and rules plays in both Judaism on one hand and Islam on the other? Oh, okay. Um, so I'd actually, I, I'd say you, there's certainly, one can definitely look at trends that view things as sort of rule-based as being connected to um, some kind of fanaticism, rigidity, um, but uh, I don't necessarily think that that's inherent in a, in, uh, a, a culture of, of norms and rules. Right. So, for example, you know, there, there, are, there are classical, you know, we see, you know, I'm part of a religious community. Um, we see uh, a, a great focus on, um, on certifications of food based on, based on esoteric <laughs> knowledge, not even based on revealed knowledge. Revealed knowledge. It's, uh, you know, because the, the response when, when one raises like, oh, well, why shouldn't this be kosher? The response is always, I have intimate knowledge of the production of food uh, that you don't have and therefore, you know. So we, we see like the politics are around food and they're around, you know, what people wear and especially what women wear and they're around like resisting any kind of change and they're around, you know, that, those are where the politics lie. But in, but in, let's say, classical rabbinic law, firstly, a lot of the actual texts are much more sort of, uh, they present a picture that's quite different from the the lived norms in the community sometimes. And sometimes they present us with a range of concerns that we would identify as being more in line with uh, broader conversations we're having in society that don't seem to be, ha that people don't seem to be having in more traditional observant communities. So, for example, uh, you know, there's a category of, uh, of be being misayer la ouvrea vera. I'm not supposed to enable people to commit, to, to do problematic things, Right. So when I buy my clothes, am I thinking about the production of my clothes? When I buy my food, am I thinking about the production of my food? Now, I, I think that that is inherent in the system of, of rabbinic law. Like, I, I personally think that, uh, I think, by the way, that, that the same thing that you can identify the same set of concerns, actually, Jewish law and Islamic law are, are probably the closest examples that I could think of, of, of legal cultures that raise these sorts of sets of concerns. Um, and... I think that it can give us the tools to think very deeply and and morally about our about ourselves as actors in the world, you know. But is that necessarily how it's being lived on on a social level in from communities? I th I think most of the time no, and I also think that that's okay. Like it's not okay in the sense that like it sh it should be better, but all of us should be better. And and I think it's quite easy to point fingers and and get upset at people. But I think, like, we're, everybody falls short all the time. And, you know, from people to people too. And, like, so, you know, we, you know, and we should all be doing truth all the time. So, you know, so, yes, yes, there's a mismatch between how things are lived sometimes and, and how I think they should be lived and how I think emerges from these classical sources. Um, but that's, that's the project of being human, trying to, trying to be better. So, I mean, I, I, I agree that there's, there's a misalignment sometimes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we should all, we should all do tshuva. May we all may, may we all be able to do the improve things in the way that we can ourselves and our communities. I hope. So, yeah, I think um, you know one thing I would say is that you know obviously. So I, I have Raf answer first because you guys came first. Um, so uh, <laughs> you know, kind of makes more sense that way. We're like you know the little little brother, you know, so to speak, um, with too many children. Um, but uh, there's no quality control anymore. It's terrible. Um, see, again, I can say these wildly outrageous things. It's one of the perks of the job. Um, I think one of the challenges is that, um, is, is, I mean, I, I know words like fundamentalism and things like that are very loaded. I think the challenge is sort of when communities reach a point where they think they know conclusively what the law means. 
um, and, and you know, that there is a single interpretation is, is one of the challenges. The second is to the, the tension between you know, din as judgment and rahmah as mercy. Um, a lot of these interpretations of Islam that are more prominent these days, or at least you know, in, in, sort of in news media or you know, just more prominent because they're more violent, right? Um, not necessarily numerically preponderant, um, don't really have much of a place for mercy. And so um, there's a sort of, you know, there's, a, there's a, um, a rigidity on interpretation and a rigidity of uh, compassion or, or an absence of compassion. And so, you know, to give you an example, I mean, there are texts that are, you know, that can be just, I mean, interesting in the present moment, right? So there's a prophetic saying, there's different, you know, in books of prophetic sayings, the sayings of Prophet Muhammad classified in different categories, one of them is sort of signs of the end times, right? Which Islam has a very kind of, you know, shall we say spirited eschatological tradition. Um, and one of them that's fascinating is um, there will come a time when there will be a people among you um, who will be more pious than you. Um, they, will, they will pray more than you, they will fast more than you, and they will be in every respect greater than you uh, in their deeds. And yet nothing of what they do will ever go beyond their tongues. Right, as in they do all these things, but there's literally no moral consequence to their actions. And then the second half of the text, which is very interesting, says um, uh, nothing will come from them except harm. Whoever is killed by them or kills them will be in heaven. What do you do with that text? <laughs> like, what, who does that apply to? Right, now if you... I mean, if you were to take that very literally, that could cause, as one imagines, a lot of problems. So I think um, one of the challenges is, you know, again, with strength and weakness, if you are to have a religious tradition which places great emphasis on observance, right, and outwards forms of observance as twinned with internal forms, I think they have to be balanced with a, a very deep generosity and humility um, that we can be wrong. And this is why I prefer the classical interpretation, which is that the more you know, the more harm you can do. Um, or as we see in Star Wars, um, the worst characters always start out as the Jedi, right? It's not some average person on the street who turns into like the embodiment of evil. It's the person who becomes closest to God who can become the more dangerous. Because once you speak with the authority of the divine, um, you can cause far more harm and far more abuse than someone who simply you know, goes about their everyday business. I don't know if that quite answers your question, but for me, that's a compensatory mechanism. So Haron mentioned Sufism very briefly, and I just wonder if you could tell us a little about Sufism and how it brings, you know, because I understand that there were Jewish Sufis. There were Jewish Sufis. And so how, how it sits in this tradition, in this tension of um, rationalism and mysticism. I think that's mine. That's yours. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, where it is chronologically. So, so I'm going to walk over to the whiteboard. So in this philosophical tradition, you know, it grows out of classical rabbinic tradition during the Islamic period. Um, there is, by the way, Jewish philosophy that's engaged with Greek thought um, during the rabbinic period, but it doesn't seem to touch rabbinic culture, and it sort of ends up transmitted more by Christians than by Jews and rediscovered in the early modern period by Jews. So that's an interesting thing. But anyway, so this sort of goes on and on and on. We get to the Rambam. There, there, there is some, I mean, there is some awareness and some engagement with Sufism earlier, the, the sort of really classical early-ish example of that is Rabbeinu Bachev in Pakuda, who wrote the, the Guide to the Duties of the Heart, and so he sort of models his, his major work on, on Sufi literature, um, but that, and he uses a lot of Sufi terminology, but really fundamentally he's got a more Neoplatonic philosophical approach to the world and psychology and, and, sort of, and human cultivation and that sort of thing, and contemplation. It's a, it's a bit more in the Neoplatonic tradition in that sense. But so anyway, that probably doesn't help. But then we get to sort of, we get to the Rambam, as I said, he lives 1138 to 1204. And he's actually, he's been regarded because of the history of the reception of the Rambam, the interpretation of the Rambam in the Christian world, which occurred in Hebrew and was therefore transmitted. A lot of Judeo-Arabic, so, um, Arabic works written by Jews, usually in Hebrew characters, were translated into Hebrew by the time and around the time that the Rambam was active. And so he took, so in the Christian West, they, they 
basically interpreted him in a very pure Aristotelian kind of a way. That's connected to, a, to the dominance of a particular Muslim philosopher, uh, Ibn Rushd. So anyway, so, they, so he became dominant there. That's the way that that, that was interpreted in the West. And in the, in, in, the, in the Latin Christian West, and in the Islamic world, post-Rambam, you had a whole different Jewish culture that became forgotten. Like, I mean, it's a historical accident that um, they missed the translation movement, and so and Jews in the, in the Arabic-speaking world stopped reading literary Judeo-Arabic after a couple of centuries. And um, so if you want to learn Rambam, you, you want to learn the God of the Perplexed, you, you pick up a Hebrew translation, even if you're living in Morocco. Right? Even if you're an Arabic-speaking Jew living in Syria, you pick up, you know, most likely a Hebrew translation. So you have an entire literary tradition that became ultimately marginalized. It took a while. But from the late 19th century through the 20th century, it's sort of been rediscovered through the Geniza, through all the Cairo Geniza. It's a whole different, we could have a whole presentation on the Cairo Geniza, could have like a whole life devoted to the Cairo Geniza. People have devoted their entire lives to the Cairo Geniza. Uh, but through the discovery of these, of these manuscripts and, and this lost literature, we've really discovered that the descendants of the Rambam, so the arch, the arch rationalists, of the Jewish tradition, who, by the way, I, I, people have started talking about his philosophical mysticism. So he also had a, an idea of an intuitive, um, an intuitive perception of something of the divine that goes beyond the, the rational and the discursive, and that's a really important part of his of his thought. Um, but uh, and there's been more focus on those aspects. Traditionally, there is a focus on that, but in the academic world, people weren't really focused on that. Um, so they picked up, so the Rambam's descendants and the communities in the Islamic East, um, as opposed to the Latin West, so in, in the Islamic world, really picked up on those aspects within Maimonides, and they engaged very deeply with Sufism, and they were also, um, the, the most dominant philosopher among them was a philosopher called Ibn Sina, who really um, came up with his own sort of synthesis. He adopted a lot of Sufi language and Sufi terminology. So you had Jews who took on Sufi practices. So the Rambam's son, Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam. So the Rambam's son, Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam, was, was like the, the big representative of this. They stayed Jewish, uh, but he very explicitly said, uh, look, this Sufism stuff, excellent. The stuff that the, what the Sufis do is based on the practices of the prophets. And so when we follow the Sufis, we're actually following the prophets. That's, that's, that's what he writes explicitly in his major work. Um, and, he, and he was the Nagid. He was the, like the chief rabbi of the Jews of pretty much the Islamic world, you know, which is incredible. And that, that tendency is traced from him all the way down to the last known descendant of the Rambam. So there are lots of families that say, oh, we're descended from the Rambam. But historians can't trace, trace anything past Rabbeinu David ben Yoshua ibn Maimuni, who died in about 1415. Um, and he and he wrote a, a he's one of his major works was a, a like a Sufi treatise, um, and so and they and they're very conscious of this. They're very self conscious of this. So you know, and I think we, you know we think of this in a very like um, oh that's so strange, you know, or something like this. But like think about Raf Soloveitchik. You know, he read you know contemporary philosophy and he engaged with it and he thought about it in, in those terms and he. That, that didn't feel unnatural to him and that didn't compromise in his, in his uh, mind, that didn't compromise his commitment to, uh, to his Jewish spiritual life and his tradition. Uh, but that was what was going on post-Maimonides in, in the Islamic world. And they, they took on, like, um, it seems there are references, it seems, to audition, so sama, so listening to um, music, chanting, things like this, uh, to get oneself into uh, a, a contemplative state. Um, they, they, they use the language of zikr, of recollection of the divine a lot, um, that one should be constantly mindful of the divine in, in that sense. Um, they talk about the, uh, the makamat, the stations, the way stations on the journey to the beloved. They use a lot of the language of like sort of the journey to, to the divine beloved. Um, and that they even bestowed sort of like as an, an initiatory practice, the, the master would bestow a, a sort of um, uh, khirqa. How would you explain a khirqa? Like a, 
ritual patchwork garment. Yeah, like a, a cloak. Like a, like a, a cloak. A, yeah, yeah, a cloak upon the upon well, a, clo- yeah, a cloak to the of. disciple. <laughs> it's a marker of initiation into discipleship. Um, and so, and so th- they took on a lot of these practices, retreats for a period of time of fasting and contemplation. Like there's a 40-day retreat that, that was a common Sufi, Sufi practice, and that was taken on by Jews. There's like very clear evidence of this, like correspondences where people talk about this retreat. And, you know, so that, that, was, that was going on. And I think my impression, having not, um, my impression from not going very deeply locally into this issue, but my impression is that pretty much this, the exile of the Spanish Jews, the, the Spanish expulsion, brought that to a, brought that to an end, because you, you had this massive population of of Spanish Jews bringing the the, the tradition of Spanish Kabbalah to the uh, to the Islamic world, and that just became very dominant very quickly, and um, and there were aspects that were integrated into that, but it was it was not the same. That that sort of tradition of Jewish engagement with Sufism. I don't know if we should, like, I don't know about Jewish Sufism, just calling it that sort of comfortably, but a very deep Jewish engagement with Sufism, that sort of came to an end in, in that sense. There are individuals after that, but it's not a, not a trend. Um, I've always had a trouble with my own religion, Judaism, and now I understand if I convert to Islam, I'm going to have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that we're supposed to be created in the image of God and supposed to spend our lives perfecting ourselves. But when um, someone like Job did that, he was punished and God said, Yours is not to question why. You will never understand what's going on in my mind, which is what you were talking about. And I find that a total cop-out. And I want to know how you reconcile that in Islam, just in case I join <laughs> So uh, first, and this is an open invitation, um, you know, there's, there's two approaches to the present kind of challenge of the modern Muslim world. One is to kind of internal reform. Two is to just bring in people who are relatively sane and then hopefully, you know, have that balance out. So, no, I'm saying you are. That's why I'm saying you're more than welcome. I'll give you the form right after this. Um, Come to the secret meetings. Obama will be there. Um, You you know, um, he's a nice guy. He's really cool. Um, He smokes shisha and everything. Um, So, uh, which is the seventh pillar of Islam. Um, thou, Thou shalt smoke. Um, so, actually, I, I do jokingly say that we should have like a reapplication process to like just to get rid of some of the you know less savory elements. And so the first is just sort of your name, location, and then the only question is tell us a joke, because if you can't tell someone a joke, you're probably crazy. Um, so this is you know if someone doesn't have a sense of humor, they're usually then you have a problem with fundamentalism. So if you can't laugh at yourself, you know. Um, what I would say in, in seriousness uh, is, you know, a few things. One is, um, you know, our traditions are very similar, but there are differences. Um, the first difference we have is we don't believe prophets sin. Um, they are incapable. They are, they are prophets specifically because they, were never, they will never willingly dos- disobey God. So even in the Muslim tradition, Adam isn't a prophet until he arrives on earth. Um, because it's only after he sins and he becomes aware of it that he elevates in, in status. Um, the second thing is that, I mean, the word Islam itself literally means submission. Um, so, you know, our spiritual practice, I mean, every tradition has emphases on certain things. Our entire, the purpose of our tradition is to reconcile oneself with the will of the divine. Um, in, in some Sufi traditions, that means basically obliterating the self. It's called fanat. Um, it's often uh, described in the poetic tradition of Sufism as what happens when the moth meets the candle. Right? So when a moth circles a flame, you know, it, it disappears in, into the flame, right? And that's what you're supposed to do with yourself. You're supposed to extinguish yourself and become one with the divine. That's one approach. Uh, another approach is simply that one's life is spent in this attempt to basically create a harmony or concordance between the divine and the self without annihilating the self. Um, but the, the key sort of, I guess, nuance there is that submission in Arabic is a verbal noun. It's closer in English to submitting, as in it's a, it's, a, it's a thing you do. It's not a state you arrive in, right? Because you will never, I mean, if you could just simply reconcile yourself to the divine like that, then there wouldn't be much of a purpose to spiritual practice. So it's this constant attempt to do that with the caveat that you never really know what divine will is, right? So, you know, like, so I'll give you a simple example, right? Um, is suffering 
um, a sign of God's displeasure or pleasure? And we don't know, right? Now, if I lose my job, for example, and go through financial hardship, um, at, the, at the bare minimum, the Islamic tradition says that is a form of purification that wipes away your sins. Um, so any hardship means that you arrive on the day of judgment before God with less to atone for. And so in the Muslim tradition, um, and again, the tradition I know better so I can speak to, I'm, I'm not claiming Judaism is one way or another, I'm just speaking to what I know. Um, the the that harder, exists, that exists I'm assuming it's the same thing, right? Yeah, so the harder, the harder your life is here, the easier it is there. The more power you have here, the more you have to answer for. So if you're like a Bashar Assad, right? I mean, you could be a horrible human being, but if you have no power, right? That horribleness is just internal. You can't inflict your horribleness on another person. And so there's a, there's a tradition, a Muslim tradition, a very famous one that a lot of Sufis use, um, where, you know, the king approaches Daniel, the prophet Daniel, and says, you know, look at what I could do to you, right? Like, look at the power I have over you, right? Where is your God now? And Daniel responds, imagine what my God thinks of you if he is using you to harm me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, I, I think it's, I see what you're saying. I just, I, I don't think it's quite that easy to say, even in the Islamic tradition, it's very easy to say, I'm submitting myself to the divine. But what that means and whether we know what the divine will is, is this permanent kind of state of struggle. And I'm sure you, I mean, it, it seems like it's, from what I can tell, very similar in the Jewish tradition. So basically, you can still convert. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's fine. I we, we, have enough trouble with my own. We're being signaled to wrap up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike building Jerusalem.